Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. Today, I want to, um, if you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to the book of Galatians. Um, I want to uh, share with you out of the book of Galatians, but before I start there, I just want to talk about looking at the big picture. It's important sometimes to back up and look at the big picture. As I approached the book of Galatians, I'd actually been reading Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, those four books. I've been reading them several times, and and I'm just stirred by them. They're really good. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to pick one and start preaching on it. And so I thought, well, Galatians is first. Let's go with that. But, you know, a lot of the times, um, a lot of preaching will will go, you know, topical and they'll bounce all over the scriptures, all over the Bible, and they'll preach everything that the Bible says about a topic. And that's a good kind of preaching. I really appreciate that. But there's also preaching where you go line by line through the scripture and you look at each verse by verse and you understand what it means and put it in its context. And that's a good kind of preaching, too. I really enjoy that as well. But sometimes I feel like you need to maybe back up a little bit and look at the larger context of what you're studying too. Because sometimes you can get so into the verse by verse and the definition of the words that you can miss the big picture. You know, context is king when it comes to understanding what somebody is saying. Even if you don't understand what a word maybe means, uh, you can oftentimes know what they're saying by the context that they're placing that word in. And so, Uh, we need to always kind of keep our eye on the big picture, if you will. You know, a lot of people, they lose sight of the big picture. You know, you've heard the saying about losing the forest for all the trees or whatever, however that works. But uh, you lose sight of the big picture. You know, the Jewish people, when their Messiah came, they should have understood that this was the one Kem uh, who was prophesied all through all the Old Testament. Uh, this was their Messiah coming to redeem Israel, coming to keep his promises to Israel. But they missed the big picture because they were so focused on the little nitty gritty. They would micromanage the law and they would try to keep every little jot and tittle. Not that you they shouldn't have kept the jot and tittle, but they were so focused on the little details that they missed the big picture, right? They were trying to, you know, Keep uh, keep the Sabbath, keep the holidays, keep the festivals, keep the tithe, keep the diet. And they would just jump on anybody who would get a little bit off of their interpretation of these things. And all the while, their Messiah is standing there ready to bless them, and they're missing it. Not only are they missing it, they're opposing him, and they're the ones who called for his crucifixion. So the big picture is very important, amen? And we need to not miss the big picture because we can be so consumed sometimes with our own traditions, our own ways of doing things, preserving the way we think it should be over and over that we can also miss the big thing that God's doing. Because God is doing big things on the earth, right? You believe that or you wouldn't be here, right? I believe God is working. And so, you know, the Bible is basically broken up into the new covenant, the old covenant, right? The old covenant is, covers about 4,000 years of history. It covers a lot, really. And uh, basically, the Old Covenant is God's dealings with the nation of Israel. Why? Because he chose one nation, Israel, and he said, I'm going to work through this one nation, and through this nation, I'm going to reach all the nations, right? But it's important to always remember that God always has had all the nations in mind when he was dealing with Israel, all of them. Um, Look at uh, um, Galatians 3, verse 8. This is quoting uh, the story of Abraham. 
and is quoting from Genesis chapter 22 and verse 18. And Paul is saying here, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Justify means to forgive you and to make you right with God. That's basically uh, what it means. You've been made right with God. You've been forgiven so that you can be right with God by faith. So he's saying that he's, God is wanting to justify who? The Gentiles. That's the Greek word for nations or ethnos. That's a word for ethnic group. Paul is making the case that, that God wanted to reach all of the nations through faith. And so he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. I mean, who is Abraham? He's the father of Israel, right? He was the one who God took and made a covenant with him, um, a promise, actually. He gave him a promise. We would call that an unconditional covenant. It means I'm not putting any requirements for you to keep on this, but I am going to bless all the nations through you. I'm just going to do it. It's a promise. And Abraham believed God. And because Abraham believed God, um, the Bible says that that was credited to Abraham as being right with God, righteous. He was right for believing God. So, but here's the thing. When God chose Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, he had all of the nations in mind. Amen. Would you agree with that? Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As we were singing some of the songs, some of the lyrics, uh, we're talking about that because you are holy. The whole earth sings your praise, right? The whole earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the water covers the seas. He wasn't just interested, even in the Old Testament, he wasn't just interested in one nation. He always had this goal in his mind. So God's claim on the Jewish people was just an advanced marker a marker, like a signpost, a stake. You know, you'd stake a claim. It was a, a stake that was just claiming his rights to the whole earth. My claim on Israel just represents what I'm going to do for the whole earth. And then we get into the New Testament, and the New Testament deals with the fulfillment of that covenant. It's a much smaller book. It only covers about, what, 60 years of history, something like that. It's a much smaller, 4,000 versus 60 years. But it deals with the coming of Jesus, who is Israel's Messiah, the Christ. It deals with, of course, his death, burial, and resurrection. And then after that, it, it covers about the first 30 years of church history. But here's what's interesting to me. Some of the challenges that's worked out when you read the New Testament, you see these same things repeated over and over and over. Uh, what they're working out in that first 30 years was the problems and the questions that came up with bringing, taking what began as a small Jewish movement and taking it into all the world. That's what, a lot of what the scriptures are dealing with. Because again, just like God dealing with Abraham and Israel always had the whole earth in mind, Jesus always had the whole world in mind. Always. You know, what did he say? He said in Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So he's working something. He's sending missionaries. When, when you and I support a missionary or go ourselves, some of you are, have gone on mission trips. Some of you are called into ministry, I know. And when you go and when you do that and when we support those who go, what are we doing? But we're fulfilling these words of Jesus, that the gospel shall be preached into all the world and then the end shall come. Matthew 28, 19, some of the last words that Jesus said before he went ascended to heaven, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Making disciples, think about, just as a side note here, making disciples is a lot different than getting decisions. Okay? 
And we've, we've have a gospel that says, will you decide to accept Jesus so that you can go to heaven when you die? Okay, that's not the gospel. The gospel is to make followers of Jesus so that Jesus has Jesus people on the earth right now. Yeah, and yeah, you will go to heaven when you die, but that's not the main thing. When we read the Bible with, with the idea of how do I get to go to heaven when I die, I miss so much of what the Bible is talking about. So he says, go and make disciples of all nations. What's a disciple? You know, think about the word discipline, right? Anybody who's good at a trade or a skill, you've become disciplined. You've worked at that. You're good at that. A disciple is a follower, somebody who follows the teachings of Jesus and can do them. And Jesus himself said, uh, it is enough for the disciple to be like his master. I mean, if you go and take an apprentice job somewhere, when I was uh, young, one of my first real jobs, I finally got out of the Hardee's, man. Finally got out of the fast food and I got a real job, you know? And uh, it was a, a just a bunch of guys who, I mean, you wouldn't have thought they were super professional or anything, but what they did was they tore apart aircraft interiors and rebuilt them. And it was a skilled trade. And I was there as an apprentice. I mean, I wasn't called an apprentice. I was a helper, but I was learning every different area. I learned how to paint, learn how to take things apart, learn how to do fabric and upholstery and carpet and all these different things that were involved there because that, that's, that's exactly what a uh, apprentice would do, right? You, you, and if I could have stayed there uh, long-term, I would have eventually got to the point where I'd have been able to, you know, do all of it myself. I was learning things very quickly. Well, when we follow Jesus, we need to learn. We need to submit ourselves to his teaching, right? His teaching and learn how to do the things that he taught us to do. He said, go into all world, teaching them to obey all the things I commanded you. That's what he said. And so uh, there are things that, he, I mean, thank God for the scriptures, right? If you can't find anybody that looks like Jesus yourself, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and let Jesus himself mentor you. Amen. So go into all the world and uh, make disciples of all nations. Luke 20, 24, 46, he says, It is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise, rise, from, rise from the dead and repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And uh, Acts 1 and 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the whole book of Acts is just is outlining that first 30 years of church history, how they begin preaching in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria. And then it kept growing and growing in the final chapters. You see Paul, he's a prisoner, but he's in his own house and he's preaching in Rome, the capital of the world. And at that point, the whole movement became, it was just on its way to actually taking over the Roman Empire at that point. It was a matter of, of, a, of, of a few hundred years, and it did. But that was God's intention from the beginning, always had the world in mind. I could go into the beginning of Luke where he records the, the, uh, um, the narrative of Jesus being born and the prophecy toward him uh, in the temple about, uh, I don't have it back there, Kaylee, because I'm just thinking about it as I'm going, but he's talking about Jesus being a light of revelation to the Gentiles, right? He's always had the nations in mind. And so the New Testament is a fulfillment of what God had been speaking to Israel, and the other thing that's so cool about the, the Old Testament, it prophesied this, even though the Jews missed it. But one thing they did believe that when their Messiah came, he would not be the king of Israel only, but he would be the king of the whole world. That's what they were expecting. 
Uh, you can read a passage just like Psalm chapter 2 and verse 8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. This is a what we would call a messianic psalm. It's talking about the ministry of Jesus before it happened. And he's saying, I am going to make the nations your inheritance. In Daniel chapter 7, there's several passages I could read, but I'm going to read verse 13. Daniel's seeing these visions, and he says, In these visions, I behold, the clouds of heaven there came, there came one out of the clouds like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the new covenant is tracking uh, the coming of Israel's Messiah and all those things that that means, all the implications of that, which there are, there are many. The book of Acts um, actually deals with... Um, uh, the book of Acts and the letters, the historical part of the New Testament, like I said, the book of Acts is the first 30 years of the church. Most of the rest of the New Testament, except for the book of Revelation, is letters, right? Letters written to individuals who are Christians or to churches um, dealing with these things and working these things out. You know, you get a really good insight into how a person thinks when you read a personal letter that they wrote to somebody. You know what I mean? One of my heroes um, has been, you know, like Smith Wigglesworth. John Lake, some of those early Pentecostals who did so many miracles. And I've got this book, and in it is a letter that John Lake wrote to a man named Charles Parham. Charles Parham was the one who had the Bible school. If you know your Pentecostal history, Charles Parham had the Bible school in Topeka, Kansas, where they were seeking the Holy Spirit. And that's when they kind of started receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. It's a neat story. But this was several years later, and John Lake's writing a letter to him. And boy, he's just getting raw. <laughs> he's just telling him straight. Because why? He's writing a letter to a personal friend. I have no idea how this letter got published. But uh, you get insight into his thinking, into his character in this letter. And so when Paul writes these letters to churches or he writes them to his friends like Timothy and Titus, you get, a, you get some real insight into how he thinks and what's going on. So I thank God for these letters. But these letters, they're working out. They're, they're dealing with these problems. Um, the New Testament letters and the book of Acts, they were written in a time period. And what they're working out is how God has kept his promises to Israel. Do I have that list? How God has kept his promises to Israel through Jesus. Because that's one of the things they had to convince the Jews. The Jews are waiting for a warrior king to come and actually, you know, with the sword, kill their enemies and restore the kingdom. But that's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus was bringing, right? But it, but it is a kingdom, okay? It's not of this world, but it is in this world. And so they're dealing with how God kept his promises to Israel through Jesus. That's one of the topics. Another thing they had to do is how God has blessed all of the nations through Jesus. That's what they're working out. When the Gentiles get into this, um, what do they have to do? How do they get to be a part of this? And that's number three. Whenever the Gentiles who do come into the kingdom, um, do they have to convert to Judaism? This was a big question that they didn't have a clue early on. They fought about it. 
I mean, they were in some heated debates over this one because uh, some of the people said, hey, we got to project protect Judaism. If you want to be in on Israel's Messiah, you've got to become a Jew. And then other people like Paul and them were like, absolutely not. We, we're, we're, we receive this by grace, not because we've kept all these, these laws. These laws have been a burden to us. These laws have been a, a, a heaviness that we've had to carry. And then when Jesus comes, we enter into what he has by grace through faith. And it's the same as for them and for us. Let's not put the burden of Torah, the law on them. And this is what they had to work out uh, all through the New Testament. You see it over and over and over again. And the Paul's letters to Galatians deals with all of these. Paul's letter to Galatians deals with all of these. So if you will, let's look at Galatians. Well, before I do, let me give you a little background on the book itself. All right. Thanks, thanks Crystal. You're smiling. I know you're happy. <laughs> We're going to go back and we're going to look at uh, the earliest letter. It's one of the earliest letters, one of the earliest letters in the New Testament. Uh, probably was written after Paul's first missionary journey. If you uh, are familiar with the book of Acts, he was sent out on a missionary journey and he traveled through Galatia and he established these churches. Um, the reason that we think it probably happened then, some people think it was a little bit later, but um, there is no mention of the Jerusalem Council in the book of Galatians, which happened in Acts 15 between his first and second journey. A little bit of history there. If you want to track that down, you can. But it was most likely written to these churches that he established in his first missionary journey, which is modern-day Turkey. And I think the map works, does it? Yeah, let's try it. Hey, look at that. I, I'm high tech. You guys ought to be proud of me for getting a map. Yeah. Look at the big green one in the middle. That's Galatia, modern day Turkey. Okay. Thank you, Kaylee. You're making me look good here. <laughs> um, so he's writing this letter because after he travels there on his first journey, he teaches them and, and he gets all these uh, non-Jewish people saved and they're worshiping God. Everything's going fine until a bunch of Christians come from Jerusalem. Okay, and they come over there and they say, hey, 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 wait, 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 wait. You know, you guys are doing this. You're claiming the Messiah and everything, but you, you, you need to go ahead and keep all of the Jewish law. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the dietary laws. You need to keep the festivals, the holidays, or you're not going to be able to be part of this new thing. And um, Paul, Paul comes on there and he's like, uh, absolutely not. And this was a big heated debate. Do they have to physically become Jewish? Do they have to convert to Judaism to be Christians? And so this is what's going on. And he says, uh, so he starts off the apostle, uh, the epistle rather, Galatians 1 and 1. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men or through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Right there, he comes out of the gate swinging, man. He's like, I am Paul. I was called by God. No man sent me. And he goes on uh, for the next uh, chapter and a half arguing about giving his own personal testimony, his history. When he met God on that road to Damascus, he said, I didn't go to Jerusalem. I didn't learn this from those people. I went to Arabia and I went alone for three years with God and I learned this from God himself. He said, I wasn't commissioned. But why? Why was that important? Why did he need to say that? Well, it's because when these people came up from Jerusalem, who were the Jewish Christians, who were all, I mean, they're already, the church in Jerusalem was made up primarily of Christians who were either Jewish or were already converts to Judaism, who had already embraced Judaism. So Paul is out here preaching uh, to people who didn't really embrace the Jewish life at all, yet they received Jesus. And so, so Paul is, uh, so these people show up from Jerusalem and they're saying, Hey, um, yeah, yeah, we know about that. Yeah. We have the real gospel. 
Um, Paul, Paul came and he shared this with you, but you know what? He kind of softened it. He's a, he's a man pleaser. Yeah, he's trying to please me. He's trying to make it easier on you guys. Um, but really, if you really want to be a true Christian, you really need to also be a true Jew. So what they were saying. And uh, Paul, I mean, he, got, he, he was heated with them. He was not for it. See, oh, what, what was going on? They were, the church there was taking fire from all sides. You got to understand this, okay? In, in, Phil, or in Galatia, rather, it's a Roman colony. And so the, Rome's pra- the Romans practiced their own cult worship, right? And, and even the, uh, the imperial cult, they were required to worship and bow down and, and say Caesar is king. Caesar is God. Caesar is Lord, right? That's what they were required to do. And so the whole city, when, whenever they had an event, was expected to show up and participate in the worship of Rome's gods and give honor and even pray to the emperor and do all this. But there's this one group who you know would not do that, and that was the Jews, right? So to, to work out an agreement with them, the Jews actually had a little ex- exemption, Okay, as long as you guys will meet and pray for the emperor, you don't have to pray to the emperor. (laughs) Okay, they worked that out. They had this little exemption where they were safe and they could live peaceably with the Gentiles. Okay, so what happens then is uh, they're claiming this Jewish exemption. Right? They become Christians, and now they're saying, I'm not going to worship Caesar either. I'm going to claim this Jewish exemption. Okay, and so all of a sudden now all these Gentiles are claiming this Jewish exemption, and so what? The Romans are looking at them and say, "What? <laughs> You're not keeping their law. You're not doing their synagogue stuff and keeping their festivals and keeping their feasts and keeping all this. You're not. You're not real, really Jewish, right?" And then the Jewish leaders they're looking at the people who are claiming the exemption, saying, "What?" <laughs> You're not with us. You got to keep all of these things if you're going to run with us because wouldn't you be afraid? I mean, they're afraid that all these Gentiles come in and claim this exemption. They're going to lose their special place too, right? But see, what a people pleaser was in Paul's day was, was a Jew who would compromise on his hard stand. That's what a people pleaser was. It was a Jew who would say, you know what? I know the Torah. I know what it says. I know the law, but I'm going to... Uh, I'm still going to go ahead and not worry about the meat sacrificed to idols. I'm just going to eat it. I'm going to go ahead and maybe eat at my neighbor's house who might be a Gentile. Uh, I'm not going to tell people converting to Judaism that they have to be circumcised and all that stuff. I'm going to just, you know, we, we're, we're relaxing. Why? They would call those Jews people pleasers. And so because Paul was taking that same stand, he said, hey, you're being a people pleaser. You're making it too easy for people converting to Judaism. Well, he wasn't converting them to Judaism. He was converting them to Christianity, right? But the charge was still against him. He says, you're being a people pleaser. And to what Paul says uh, in, in uh, Galatians 1.10, he says, look, hey, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, if I were trying to be a people pleaser, I would not be a servant of Christ. <laughs> because this is worse the stand that Paul was taking was worse because, like I said, he was getting fire from both sides. He was getting it from the church or from the Jews, and he was getting it from the Romans. And yet, what did he do? He said, stand here. He's saying, look, it would actually be easier in this case if we would embrace Judaism <laughs> and tell the, tell the Gentiles to become Jews. Why? Because they wouldn't be persecuted. 
It would be an easier thing. They could claim the Jewish exemption. They could live a place, find a place in the culture alongside of the Jews. But what would that do? It would compromise the truth of the gospel. I know it's a, I know it's a real, you know, it's a fine little line that he's drawing here, but the, the history makes the book make sense. You know what I'm saying? To understand what was going on. He said, I'm not trying to please man. If I was trying to please man, I would be doing exactly what you're saying to do. I'm trying to please God. And he's calling the Christians. Do you realize what he's calling them to do? He's calling them to stand for truth, even though he's going to take fire from the Gentiles and from the Jews. That's a hard stand. And so here he is. If you skip down to the end of the letter, he summarizes it in verse 12. He says, it's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. He's telling them to stand for the truth, even though standing for the truth is going to bring persecution to you. That's heavy, isn't it? It's heavy. And so he goes on throughout the rest of chapter one and a lot of chapter two, and he, he re carefully retells his own personal story, how he met the Lord, how he didn't go to Jerusalem, and, but he went to Arabia and spent this time alone seeking God. And then he would eventually end up in Antioch, okay? And Antioch is the town um, that, um, if you remember in the book of Acts, Barnabas brought him to Antioch and he began teaching the church there and strengthening the church there. And Antioch is the uh, church that, that uh, was praying and seeking the Lord when the Holy Spirit said, send Paul and Barnabas out to preach to the Gentiles. And they sent him out on his first missionary journey, which is when these churches in Galatia were founded. All right. So, but he goes on, he tells uh, later on in chapter two, a time when Peter himself, you know, Peter was the disciple of the Lord. He was kind of the leader of the church early on, right? Uh, when people were filled with the Holy Spirit, it was Peter standing up and preaching the first message there. And so he tells about a time when Peter came to Antioch and he says, I, I, I opposed him to his face. Now, Peter here in this book is called uh, Cephas, which is the same thing as uh, Peter, Peter, uh, Petros, not like Petros. Petros, Greek word means stone. Uh, Kephas is the Aramaic word that means stone. But uh, he comes down there and uh, he says, when Kephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. I mean, Paul is kind of getting all up in his face here, right? He's like, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James. Okay, let's take a time out here. James, James was the Lord's brother. James did not believe that Jesus was the Christ when Jesus was on the earth. But after Jesus rose from the dead, James became a believer. This is the Lord's brother, okay? He's referred to as James, the Lord's brother. And it was because Mary had other children after Jesus, okay? And James was one of them. Um, uh, in fact, when Jesus went to his hometown and they were all offended at him, they were saying, isn't this the carpenter's son? And aren't his brothers, James, and all these guys here with us? So he had these, he's, uh, he had, Mary had other children, let me just say it like that. And so they called him the Lord's brother. Well, somehow in the middle of it, James became a believer. And James actually became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So when they say that men came from James, they're talking about men coming from the Jerusalem church, all right? So when he says certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. And when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. The circumcision party is code word for those who keep the Jewish law, okay? And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, although a Jew, 
live like a Gentile and not a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? I mean, he confronts Peter, you know, the leader of the church here, coming there, and, and he was, what was Peter's big crime? Think about it. He wouldn't eat at the same table with the Gentiles. That was his big crime. And he said his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. His conduct, and I mean, so before the Jewish believers came, they ate together. When the Jewish believers came, they tried to make them comfortable. You guys eat over here, I'll eat with you. You guys eat over here, we'll separate it. And he says that action was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I mean, and he's livid about it. He's livid about this. Why is it so wrong? I mean, it seems innocent enough. It's wrong because it denies exactly everything that Jesus came to do, right? Come on, out of the two groups, one new man. Isn't that what it says in Ephesians 3? Or Ephesians 2, I think, Ephesians 2, 15. Out of the two groups, this is what Jesus came to do. Out of the Jews and the Gentiles, out of the two groups to make one new man. And they're splitting apart and having different divisions at the table where they were not fellowshipping together was a gospel issue. What you're doing is, you're saying you believe this, but your actions are denying everything that Jesus came to do. It's a serious charge that Paul is making here. But here's, he's saying, what you are living out, it doesn't reflect the truth of what Jesus came to do. You're denying what Jesus came to do. A table for the Gentiles and a table for the Jews does not reflect the truth of the gospel. And here's the application for today. Are we keeping ourselves in step with the gospel? How I live my life, how we do church, are we really representing everything that Jesus came to do? Do the things we say we believe match how we actually live our lives every day? It's a good question, isn't it? Or have we become, you know, these kind of play actors ourselves where we just like to say we believe a certain thing and then just do whatever is convenient for us, right? I'm telling you what, to get Jews and Gentiles together at the same table took a lot of work. It just did. I mean, they were so diametrically opposed to one another. But, but the Bible made it clear this is worth working toward. You know, and I see, um, you know, one of the things I got to speak with them uh, last year with um, Mel Rogers, you know, and we were just talking about uh, missions, world missions, because, you know, he works with the Muslim people all over. And, and I thought it was interesting because one of the things that I've always observed, you know, in, in uh, different kinds of, you know, missions and different things is, and as well, locally and domestically, you know, we have a lot of churches that are different flavors of churches. You know, even different ethnic churches. Is that does that really please the heart of God, or is that something that we should work toward to 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 come together? I'm not saying it'd be easy or even convenient. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, you go to a church of different ethnicity. I won't necessarily get my favorite food. You know, I won't necessarily hear the songs that I know. Whatever. But can I worship? Can I hang with people who are different than I am? to demonstrate that out of all of us, God is making one new man, one person. And, and when I was talking to Mel Rogers, you know, historically missions grow, the, the movement would grow faster through an indigenous person, group of people. You know what I'm saying? Somebody gets saved and they tell their friends and their family and the mission, the, the, the people come 
in that group. And so they start a, a church, that group, that culture becomes saved. But he actually, we were talking, he actually brought it up. He, he said, you know, we're looking, he, that's been the way it's been done, but we're looking for ways to bring people together, even across these cultural and ethnic lines now, because we believe that that's what the heart of God is, even in missions. I'm fascinated by that because, boy, I think there's going to be a lot of challenges in that moving forward. And there's a lot of challenges of it in the scripture, but I think it would please the heart of God. And I think it would have us being in step with what Jesus is actually wanting to do. And so the question is, do the things we say and we believe, do they match how we believe or, or, or are we just kind of going through the motions ourselves, you know? And this isn't ever, it's not supposed to be a message of condemnation or anything, just a checkup to see if our lifestyle matches what we say we believe, right? Because the Spirit of God is here to empower us to do everything that Jesus wants for us, right? See, when we get into His plan and His program, He's there working for us. That's where the miracles are. That's where the exciting things are happening. But when we're doing our own thing, man, we're just on, <laughs> that's work on our own. That's why we call it our own thing. I don't want to do our own thing. I want to do his thing, right? So if I've been forgiven and made truly right with God, if I've received that justification, that forgiveness, if I've been declared right with God, then how does that reflect my life? I mean, number one, I think it would reflect my relationship with God, right? I would have a heart of gratitude toward God and also a confidence and a boldness in approaching God. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If I've been forgiven of God, man, I have a boldness toward God now, a con not, not an arrogance, but a confidence toward God because he did it. And he wants me to approach him with boldness and confidence, knowing that he'll help me as I am working for what he wants to accomplish. Amen. It also will reflect my relationship with one another. If I've been forgiven, it says uh, in Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another as Christ. Uh, and if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. I mean, if I, here's the thing, if I am walking in unforgiveness towards other people, if I can't forgive you, I am, my actions are not in step with the truth of the gospel right? It becomes a gospel issue because I'm preaching the gospel with how I live my life. If I'm living this outright, you should see Jesus at work in me. Um, uh, if I didn't believe that Jesus had come to serve, to be, what do he say? He says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's what Jesus said. Well, if Jesus came to serve, then I can serve too. That would be living my life in step with the gospel. I can serve others. Um, Philippians 2, chapter 3 through 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. We covered this one on Wednesday night. We've been talking about the new man on Wednesday night. It's been, it's been really good. Uh, we covered this passage. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or deceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So we're supposed to be looking for one another's needs. We're supposed to be humble and we're supposed to be looking to others interests. And he says, this is the mind that you need to have in your church and in your, among yourselves. And this is the same mind that Jesus had. You know, we, we used to always say, I have the mind of Christ. Well, 
if, if this isn't your mind, you don't have the mind of Christ. This is the mind of Christ, right? This is what he did. He came to serve and to look for the interest of others, to help one another, okay? And so if I have the mind of Christ, this is what I will reflect in my life. This is what it will look like when my conduct is in step with the gospel. Otherwise, why would anybody believe us, right? I mean, just think about it. There's a lot of things that the church has done historically uh, that makes people not want to be believers. I mean, I don't not even want to ask you to show your hands. So don't raise your hands. It's a rhetorical question. How many of y'all have ever been hurt at church? There you go. Point made, right? But here's the thing. The whole purpose of Jesus coming, the whole purpose of Jesus coming was so that the Holy Spirit could reproduce Christ in us. Really, he's not even that concerned about going to heaven when you die. Heaven is a temporary place. This earth will be recreated. We'll come back. We'll rule and reign with him. It's, 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 it's important. Heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world, right? Because we go to heaven. We do. The Bible teaches that we go to heaven when you die. Right? But then he comes back and he puts his feet down on this earth. And he comes back with the heaven's hosts and, and, and he recreates this world. And this is where we're going to be again. Heaven and earth joined together, but we're going to be here. And, and, and when he talks about being made right with God and, and being justified, he's not just talking about going to heaven when you die. He's talking about the Holy Spirit coming and reproducing Jesus Christ in you right now, today, today. Galatians 4.19, I'm going to read these couple passages from Galatians, okay? My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He's praying and he's, he's, uh, he's talking about, <laughs> I know a little bit about childbirth. I was in the room about two months ago, right? I know somebody else does here as well. But you know, he's, he's going through this labor. He's saying, he's, I'm working, I'm straining, whatever Whatever Paul knew about childbirth, you women, you can decide if he knew what he's talking about or not. But he's saying, I'm going through this anguish because I'm praying and I'm laboring for Christ to be formed in you. That is my goal. That's the intent of the gospel is for Christ to be formed in you. Galatians 3.27, for as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We're here to put on Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Man, we say that verse, right? I love it. I mean, it's one of the first memory verses you learn when you're young. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But how many, of, how many people can really say that and not be embarrassed by it? <laughs> This is Christ living in me, right? And then you act in ways that are contrary to Christ. No, if you're going to say this verse, the whole purpose is to bring our lives into agreement so that we can walk and live in step with the gospel. Well, that's good stuff, isn't it? That Christ be formed in me. And it's a work of the Spirit of God. It's not something that I do myself. Like we were saying, preaching on Wednesday nights, I'm like, it's not about trying harder all the time. It's yielding to the Spirit of God that's in you that is empowering you to walk this out. Okay, so the life that I live now in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's about the image of Christ being restored in you. I'm going to close with these three verses. Ephesians 4, 24. It says, put on the new self. King James says, put on the new man. Okay, put on the new self created after the likeness of God. 
hear that word right there, the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness, holiness, good words, right? Colossians 3, 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self or the old man with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Likeness and image. Adam was made in the image and in the likeness of God, right? And so what did Jesus do? He came so that you could be restored to the image of God. Our calling is to walk and be in the likeness and the image of God once again. And I'm going to sum it up with this because Paul puts this towards the end of the end of the Galatians. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 15. For neither circumcision, law keeping and all that represents, counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but what? But a new creation a new creation. We are a new man in Jesus Christ. And our life needs to reflect and be in step with the gospel that we say we believe. And uh, quite frankly, I'm excited about it. I'm excited about what we can be, what we can become as we yield to this. Amen? You with me? Is good? All right, let's pray. Yeah. Yes, to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, and with thanksgiving, I'll be a fitting song. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, I thank you for this moment. Lord, I would ask that you would let this word, this message, this gospel that Paul declared I would ask that you would let it corner me, Lord, into making a decision to either going forward with you or admitting that I'm not going there. Father, my prayer is that my life 
would be in step with what I say I believe. My prayer is that my life would be in step with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that how I live demonstrates what you came to do. Father God, don't challenge us, change us. Change us. It says, Philippians, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Father God, where we have put our hand to the plow and then hesitated and looked back, Lord, we repent. We repent. We take our hand back and put it to the plow and go forward to experience everything that Jesus died to provide for us. Father God, I thank you for working in this church. I thank you for just the witness, the testimony of, of, of the things that you've done, the answered prayers and, and uh, your presence among us. Well, Lord, let us go out of this place today and be your people. Be an be a army, Lord, who's willing to even do the hard things even in the face of persecution. Not out of arrogance or self-seeking, Lord, but just out of humility and faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's all, there's all kinds of uh, issues and, and stands that I could take that would just be for self-promotion and self-seeking. But Lord, let us take the stands that matter so that we can live a life that demonstrates what you came to do. Father God, I just thank you for I just thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for the heart of this church, Lord. Continue to lead us, continue to grow us up, and conform us into the image of that man, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.